Gang, for over a year now, I've been talking about True Hemp Science Full Spectrum CBD oils and how they've reduced my anxiety and helped me get better sleep without waking up feeling foggy and confused. I've also talked about the Full Spectrum CBD bombs that relieved my hand pain last year and made playing piano and guitar much easier. Well, gang, today I'm going to tell you about True Hemp Science organic gummies made with full spectrum hemp oil that are available now. They come in two different gauges. There are five, uh, 50 milligram ones that have 50 milligrams of CBD and 1.5 milligrams of THC. Then there are ones that are 100 milligrams of CBD and 5 milligrams of THC. Absolutely delicious uh, lemon lime slash orange flavors and also watermelon black cherry flavors. Super, super delicious. Now, now, they also have a complete line of full-spectrum CBD products, including oils, tinctures, skincare lotions, sports rubs, chocolates, gummies, all kinds of stuff. Well, gang, How Did I Get Here has teamed up with True Hemp Science to bring you a very special offer that benefits all of us. Spend $100 or more at TrueHempScience.com and you will get a free gift. Just enter the code HDIGH at checkout. There's a little code place there for you to enter it. H-D-I-G-H and you will get a free gift with purchase. That's right. Go to TrueHempScience.com and balance your body and mind with True Hemp Science. Let's get down. You may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? It's time for How Did I Get Here? Hello, I'm Johnny. I'm your host. Welcome to the show. I hope you guys all had a good week, whatever it is you did this week. Hope you had a good Halloween. Maybe you dressed up and went out and got crazy. I had a really good week and I had a good Halloween. I will tell you all about it in just a second. Before I get to that, though, I would really like to thank you guys for listening to this episode of How Did I Get Here? Because I know that you have a lot of choices out there. And the fact that you chose this episode of How Did I Get Here to listen to right now means a lot to me. Now, I don't know what platform you're listening to it on, but if you don't follow us on that platform, please do. It helps us. It helps us keep this show free, helps us with our advertising, helps us keep the show for free. So while you're there following us, if you can give us a rating, let us know how we're doing, uh, you know. Get involved. That's what I'm trying to say. Also, if you want to get further involved, you can follow our Facebook page as How Did I Get Here? And also, I'm on Instagram and Twitter as at Johnny Gowdy. So you can follow me there, see my life, see pictures of my dog, whatever you want. All right? Thanks for following. As I said, gang, I had a great week. A great week, a great Halloween. Started out Monday night playing with Kimmy Rhodes. She does a a residency at the Saxon Pub at 6 p.m. She's going to continue to do it, I think, a few more times. There's a few more shows coming up, but uh, she has different guests every time. And this time, it was a song swap, but it wasn't like four people just sitting on stage trading songs. It was like we got together, we rehearsed, we worked on backing vocals, and we added a band. So the songwriters were me, Kimmy Rhodes, her son, Gabriel Rhodes, who's a co-writer of mine and a great friend. So is Kimmy. Um, and, uh, and Sean Pander, who's an amazing songwriter and singer. But we also had a band. We had the legendary drummer, Rick Richards, on drums. We had Gabriel Rhodes on. We had three generations of Rhodes on stage. 
Louis Rhodes played keyboards and the incredible Harmony Kelly played bass. Now we all had backing vocals. We all knew each other's songs. So it was like a band with four singers. It was really fucking awesome. And it took off. People that were there thought it was really special. In fact, we have decided to probably do this again. I'm going to hold them to it. I think we even have a band name. I'm not going to say what it is yet. Well, we were calling it Happy Land. We said it at the show. So maybe if you see this band Happy Land, I'll tell you. I'll keep you up to date on what's going on with that band. But it was a great night. It was so much fun. We were raising money for this uh, for this nonprofit called Home, which provides housing for elderly musicians here in Austin, which is really, really important. So uh, if you can go, I know Kim, uh, Kimmy will be doing it next Monday and the Monday after at the Saxon Pub at 6 p.m., all right? Every Monday. So then Tuesday, which was Halloween, I joined my dear friend Jeff Plankenhorn, who did his fifth annual Dr. Plankenstein's Halloween Horror Show at the Saxon Pub. Now, he had an amazing house band with uh, with Brian Mendez on drums, Bruce Hughes on bass, uh, Gabriel Rhodes on guitar for the second night, and also uh, uh, Jeff Plankenhorn played guitar. And uh, I got up and did a song. A bunch of musicians got up and did songs. There was Barbara Nesbitt, Sean Pander, uh, Scott Strickland, Natalie Price, uh, Kimmy Rhodes. Kimmy Rhodes sang uh, Ghostbusters, sang it with her. Natalie Price was great. Michael O'Connor, um, Betty Sue, Michael Fracasso, Akina Adderley, Kelly McWee, Ray Prim. So many great singers. So Such a great night. Such a sense of community. Those two nights in a row kind of reminded me why you know those are the nights that remind you why you live here and why you're part of this music community it means so much because it's like a family you know here are people you've been playing with and knowing for years and years and years and 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 people you're just meeting too that have been around that you're actually getting to do some stuff with and that's all so exciting i've known bruce hughes who played bass in dr planken plankenstein's horror show band since i was 16 years old man and there we were playing a song together on stage just celebrating life this sense of community, this sense of family is so amazing in this town. We are so lucky. If you're a musician listening to this and you're part of this great thing, consider yourself really lucky. This is not happening everywhere you go. Now, it does happen. You know, it's not like it doesn't happen. It, it happens here all the time. It happens in smaller scenes, the bigger picture of everyone together. You know, as you get older, the scenes kind of blend more together. When you're younger, you're kind of in your own little scene with your group of friends and, your, and the bands that you do shows with. But then as you get older, your circle expands and your family becomes bigger. And that's what I noticed on, on Monday and Tuesday night, especially Tuesday with all those people there. It was just fucking amazing. And I'm really lucky to live here. And that leads me to today's show. Yeah, gang, today's show is about the music scene here in Austin, okay? I have Greg Beats and Richard Weimark, who just put out a book called A Curious Mix of People, The Underground Scene of 90s Austin. Now, it's the underground, mostly punk scene, starting with clubs like The Cavity, Emos, Blue Flamingo, Hole in the Wall, Electric Lounge, Liberty Lunch, Chances. These were all the places where bands like 16 Deluxe, Ed Hall, Sincola, so many bands, I can't even name them. A Curious Mix of People is an oral history that started off as a documentary that my friend Chepo Pena, who unfortunately couldn't make it to the show, but he's going to get his own show. But he came up with the idea of doing this documentary about that scene and that era and all the bands. I'm talking about bands like Spoon, Sincola, 16 Deluxe, Stretford, Fuck Emos, uh, and you will know us by the Trail of Dead, Gomez, The Motards, Pork, Squat Thrust, Impotent Sea Snakes, 
Peen Beats, Ed Hall, Moist Fist, Starfish, so many fucking bands that were playing all these places. And they're all telling the story. It's like club owners, radio people, uh, record uh, people that have the labels. The book is fucking great. I'm not joking, man. It's amazing. Uh, an oral history telling the story of the clubs, the radio stations, uh, the TV and video thing, the, the, the capsize, the television show, the Austin Music Network, the guys that did the administration who, who made all these videos that were friends with my ex-wife, Tracy, uh, that made all these videos that we saw all the time, people with the zines, the record stores like Sound Exchange that made a huge difference, and of course, all the clubs, the radio stations like KTSB, KVRX, remember KNAC? They all preceded 101X, but then 101X came in in that. Yeah, you can find all of this. I'll put a link to it. It's, I think it's at CuriousMixOfPeople.com. I'll put it in the text of this podcast. I had a really great conversation with Greg Beats and Richard Weimark. Now, they are, they're from the scene. They've been around for a long time. Greg Beats was in the band Cheeses and in the band Noodles. Or, sorry, Noodle and the band The Team Beats. He was also a DJ at KTSB and a writer at The Chronicle. And he's written a bunch of stuff. He's working on a book right now with John Doe and my friend Tom DeSavia about uh about the la music scene um richard weimark is a photographer he was a dj at kvrx and he was a producer and director at the austin music network and he worked at capsize so anyway these guys were there they were in the thick of the scene they went out and interviewed all these people and put together this oral history this amazing book called a curious mix of people the underground scene of 90s austin so without further ado please enjoy my conversation with greg beats and richard weimark let's get down is a good place to start with this because that's kind of the first of the of after after uh i'm uh, cannibal club yes yeah. yes absolutely yeah that that was that was kind of kind, kind of it for a while yeah very short period of time but it was for a while yeah so when where first just real quick are where are you from greg uh well i uh grew up in dallas and then i moved to houston when i was about Six moved here uh, when I was eighteen, so nineteen eighty seven. I've been here ever since. Okay, yeah, we were. I guess we crossed. I was in Houston eighty seven to ninety one when I moved here. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So we must have missed each other. Just you know, there's a lot of the scene. There's a couple of the bands that get mentioned that are crossovers from when I was in. He like uh, Sugar Shack. Oh God, yeah, and uh, and and Sprawl. Yes, like well, those were guys that I knew. Yeah, yeah. Well, Sprawl. Um, I'm still actually. Uh, well, uh, Clay Embry, the sax player, uh-huh. uh, he's in the band I'm in now. We've been friends for, you know, I don't know, 30-something years. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So he's been a Brown Hornet for a while, and yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, Matt lives here, too. Yeah, so, I see yeah. Matt every now and then. Yeah. And, uh, of course, Dave Dave Dove, I don't see as much, but he was always, <laughs> cool. yeah. The Reverend Dave Dove. Yeah. <laughs> did they, when you lived there, did they have the house on a... What, Lexington, whatever, behind had, 59 Diner? I had already moved, but, okay. I, but I spent a lot of time there because uh, you remember Deschmog, uh-huh, Killian Sweeney? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Killian and I were in a band in high school together. 
And so okay. before Deschmog, we, we played together. And so I, I knew Sprawl just from them coming here, but then Killian moved on to Lexington and became friends with the Sprawl guys. And so pretty much any time we went to Houston during that period, we were we were hanging with them. And then um, Peg Legacies, yeah, yeah, uh, they were they were another band. And so I'm still you know still friends with with those guys as well. Yeah. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was just I got a text from uh, Henry, their bass player today, who's now living in uh, like upstate New York or Rhode Island or someplace like that, and he's making a bunch of Halloween music. Oh he's wow! Trying to get out. He's a carp. He's like a union carpenter for sets. Makes good good bucks doing that sort of stuff. So yeah. Okay. Wow. So uh, Richard, when did you move here, man? I got here, I think, in 93, 94 sort of okay. time. It's a little fuzzy. Uh, out of, I, I finished high school in England, and I have family in Austin, and they said, hey, try and go to University of Texas. And you came here, and then you started working at Capsize? Is that what? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was amazing. Is it called working at Capsize? <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> absolutely. Okay. Yeah. No, it was, uh, it was one of those uh, advantages of going to university. They had a... a job fair i guess at the communications building yeah and one of the people looking for interns or one of the companies looking for interns was the austin music network okay and so i went to intern for them for a while and help film music and including you i'm sure at some yeah. point um and then dave pruitt was a producer there and said hey come and do this capsize thing with me and i had some sound mixing background from kvrx the ut student radio station and so it all kind of worked out nicely. We went live at midnight on Saturday night and had a live band, uh, and uh, it was wonderful. Did it you was, used to watch it, Greg? Oh, I watched yeah, yeah. it. Yeah, I, yeah me, I too, me too. Did it a couple of times, yeah. and yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I mean, Access was. It's hard. Yeah. To, it's hard it, to talk about how big Access was at that time for. I did a whole show about it with those with 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 uh, with uh, Dave and, and oh, Nate. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, just because it was. I remember coming here as a kid, like just really quickly. Like the you guys know the history of it, but like coming here as a little kid with my mom and stuff. I remember distinctly one night I was left with a friend of theirs while they went to a show, and that guy said, "Hey, do you want to watch the show they're at?" And I was like, "What?" And he put it on, and it was like Jerry Jeff Walker at the Armadillo, but they were doing that. Yeah, like in the early mid seven, like 74 and 75 and shit like that yeah i mean it was pretty, pretty amazing pretty revolutionary yeah. i mean for it's and, and yeah they've been doing it ever ever since really but i mean yeah they, i think maybe you know austin and you know i know new york had a pretty active yeah. public access channel for a while but yeah there's i mean the, it's a treasure trove but austin's like a pioneer and oh stuff. totally yeah. totally yeah it's interesting because i had uh I'm drawing a blank on his name, but the Armadillo guy, the the Threadgills guy. Oh, um, uh, Eddie. Eddie, Eddie yeah. Wilson, yeah. I had him and Jesse Sublet on talking about the Armadillo book, and it's interesting because this is like, this is a book that I was actually there because it was really fascinating to read this book, but this one, like, you're like, all your friends are in it and all, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's fucking killer, and it's a fun read. Oh. I, I will have said that in the intro already, but it was very easy to read and very exciting. And fun. I, I yeah. noticed as well, when you get the book in your hand, you can just dive into whatever chapter you want. Yeah, I tried not to do that, but it was... B but you can, though, <laughs> yeah. right? And yeah. You just do a ch what, whichever one. Just go straight to the radio chapter and re read that. And that has its own chronology. Well, you guys also do such a good job of setting up each chapter with sort of like what was happening around and what was going on in you know oh, that's the mainstream Greg. culture Greg's writing is amazing yeah you're f that, fucking great you've oh, always been great <clears throat> I yeah. appreciate that yeah. yeah it was but that but we wanted to, yeah even though we were with the university press we wanted to keep it non 
academic. Yeah. Uh, you know, not, which shouldn't take away from, you know, some of the academic stuff that's also really good. But yeah, I, I, I was kind of thinking more like Please Kill Me by Legs McNeil or, right. or The Book of Rockless by Dave Marsh or something along those lines. Well, you were yeah. able to keep the energy of, 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 of what that time was. Like it comes across while you're reading it. Like you, you get caught up in the energy of our youth. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, that's exactly what I, yeah. I was trying to convey what it was like. And yeah, so yeah. Definitely. Yeah. But there's also, uh, outside of the music somewhat, there's also a history of Austin itself just Going as a on city. Going there, yeah. yeah. Go, like, you know, the, the housing crash that, that, or the, that happened, or the real estate crash that happened in the late 80s. Yeah. That created low rent for the musicians to be able to afford to live here. Yeah. You know, all that is part of the story that Greg tells uh, in in the intros to each chapter yeah and it does all kind of start off with like kicks off with slacker like just kind of the movement of it right yeah it really i mean I, it, it starts in the to, to me it starts in the the late 80s because a lot of what was going on in the earlier 80s i think it kind of receded or play, played itself out and then you get to the late 80s and you know the the economies are the economies in the doldrums a lot of the bands that were big it kind of broken up you know a lot of the uh you know the, the stuff that was happening like with the you know when the cutting edge came to town and right right, right. uh that that had kind of come and gone a little bit and yeah. and uh but but yeah sort of on the underground i think things were starting to pop up and then you had i, I remember going to the, the uh film society when they when they were above uh quackenbush on the drag okay. yeah and they would just do screenings of movies that you would just never see um, but it's kind of harkening back to like all the stuff Cinema Texas used to do. Right. But that was that was Rick Linkletter before, or probably while he was making Slacker. Uh, wow. Un- unbeknownst to to me, I mean, I just was like, oh, "This sounds like a weird movie. Let's go see it." Were you uh, in journalism school? Is that what you did? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but and then Slacker came out, and of course, you kind of you, know, you, you even if you didn't know everybody, you knew them just from walking up and down the drag every day. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, it's funny when uh, I I moved here in um, August of 1991. And the day after I moved here, uh, Will Sexton took me to uh, 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 the Dobie to watch it. Yeah. And it was such an interesting thing. And then we went to like Les Amis. And had coffee afterwards. That, that was day one for you. That, like day that's, two. Oh, that's I lived amazing. here before. Like I lived here in the eighties. But, but still, when I moved, he was like, "You got to, you got to see this movie." And we went and saw that movie and went to Les Amis. And I just was like, <laughs> oh, "Okay, so I'm in this world now." That's like being jumped in. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. what? And then got Will Sexton, the Dobie Cinema, which yeah. was amazing, right? Slacker yeah. and Les Amis, yeah, all yeah, in one yeah. go. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I lived here as a teenager, like in the. Okay. Um, uh, in 1984 and 85, and then my mom died. And I moved away to Miami, but then I moved back in 91. But um, but I was my mom was friends with this guy Wayne Nagel. You know Wayne? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. absolutely. Uh, she was friends with Wayne. And that's how I became friends with Will. And the reason why we moved here, just real quick, it'll explain kind of like my periphery or how where I fit into the scene. My mom was really good friends with Mark Holman, who owned the Congress House with his wife, like in the late 70s and early 80s. And he kind of took me under his wing when I decided to become a musician when I was like 13. And so he was kind of like my mentor. So when I moved back here in 91, I lived at the Congress house. Oh, wow, okay. interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, now, was Wayne part of the Austin rehearsal complex? Yeah, he was with a co-owner Don with Don Harvey. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, okay. That's, yeah. that's where I know him from. Yeah. 
it was a whole that's this town has so many scenes but just such a rich history and like familial history yeah yeah, yeah. definitely it's like well know, that's something that's come out of this as well you know thank goodness facebook can means that everyone can say things to you <laughs> that was one of my favorite that's one of the things that makes me sad about Chepo not being here is all the people that were pissed oh, off that they're yeah. not in Poor guy. He takes he's it, yeah. such a lightning rod because everyone knows him right yeah, he's yeah, been in every yeah, band yeah. he's an amazing artist but also the you know there's there's the scenes like the Steamboat Anton scene right. a bit of Continental Club that, that deserves their own history right right there's the hip hop scene with House of Fat Beats right. and KVRX and the B-sides that Nick Knack did that T-Double was part of, and right. then they went to the Electric Lounge, and they did the hip-hop nights there. And like that's a huge scene of its own that was running side-by-side. Side. Like, we're all running side-by-side, right? Side, right? Yeah. right. Well, and we'd occasionally cross paths, like when, let's say, Blaze would play, which was sort of more of a band. Right. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. How can I forget Blaze? That was Brandon's band. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and Yogi on bass, yeah. right? Oh, gosh. Um, yeah. So that was all going on. And equally deserving sure. of a book and a story as us punk kids yeah. have got now. I don't know if we have a, a really good writer among us in this. In this in, at least oh, this I bet you do. You got to have like a good, because that's one of the things that really like, I feel like you could read this book and not be from here. I mean, yeah. I don't know, like I watch shit about like the Boston punk scene. Or would have like, like a local PBS thing made yeah. that's on YouTube and I'll watch it and I'll like it if it's, if it's well done. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, and I'll mm -hmm. feel like I learned something about it. Yeah. I mean, that's the idea, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think right now I'm, I'm finishing up uh, the, the second John Doe book about the L.A. scene, um, which is actually, I mean, John, John Doe is the... Wait, is, with DeSavia? Yeah. Yeah. No shit? Yeah. They did another one called More Fun in the New World that's about... Um, it's sort of like the like not really the end of the scene but kind of the point at which it, it sort of branched off in all these different directions like it wasn't just punk it was like you know the uh you know green on red and the long riders doing yeah. stuff that was more country influenced and then you know the paisley underground sure. and then bands like you know fishbone and the uh -huh. chili peppers and that kind of thing so it, but but it's really it, it's good i mean the first one was great too but this one it, in some ways is more interesting just because of the you know the the way people come to their different musical directions right yeah that for, that one was great i read it i had them both on. i've been friends with tom for a long time oh yeah yeah he's yeah. a great guy absolutely yeah um do you know DeSavia? Hmm? there's a game i told john doe i want to do invent that was the six degrees of DeSavia because he's really like connected to everyone <laughs> yeah. somewhere you know what i mean yeah i know i, I yeah <laughs> somehow okay so this book once again also Chepo's not here for this but this book kind of came about because Chepo. Uh, in 2010 started making a documentary is that right he, uh, he and I worked together a lot okay. in video and film world okay. and he said ah, why don't we make a documentary about that time when we were kids and we played along Red River and so we started and he was doing the interviews I was filming them and he did a lot of interviews and then people would send us all their flyers and zines to scan and photographs and you know and, and VHS tapes it got really overwhelming. We had so many interviews in the can. Sure. We thought, well, now what do we do? And and Greg said, well, you've got to make one movie. Like it's it's this. This is the defining movie of that time. Right. So we started on that, and that, as good of an idea as it is, became overwhelming again. 
So we just paused the video film side of things, took all of the interviews, and Greg helped transcribe them, and we started to turn it into a, an oral history. But then I thought, well, each chapter needs a little introduction, maybe a couple of sentences, maybe a paragraph. <laughs> and so Greg wrote that, and his writing is so good. It just got more and more and more. Yeah. And thank goodness, because it's not an introduction anymore. It's like the chapter yeah. it, written by Greg. It's just amazing yeah. writing. The attention to detail. Every little fact was cross-checked down at the Austin History Center by Greg. It's just amazing. There's a lot of uh, like historical facts that you don't know. I'm trying to think of ones that I learned while I was reading it, but I did feel like that, like I was learning a lot about Austin's history. It was it was interesting just because I think there were things that I remembered, but that you know I, d- I didn't really have on automatic recall. Like, um, well, I know we're like in, our, in the first chapter we talk about uh, there was a SNL here at the time, a savings and loan called Lamar Savings, and uh, the guy who ran it uh, applied to open a branch on the moon. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, that's and so was, fucking weird. Yeah, and, and so, I mean, people think about, you know, the, the 2008 recession. I mean, and the, the precursor to 2008 was the savings and right. loan crisis, and nowhere was that more pronounced than in Texas. And so, you know, and people, Austin has been prosperous for such a long time that I don't think people can really even conceive of, of what it was like right. uh, in, in the mid 80s into the early 90s, yeah. just how, how open everything was and how, uh, you know, there was a, all these office buildings downtown were vacant. Uh, a lot of the apartments in town were uh, owned by the uh, Resolution Trust Corporation, which was the federal government's uh, uh, means of shoring up, uh, you know, keeping everything from going completely underwater. Um, and And so, yeah, as a result of that, it was... It was a very inexpensive place to live uh, relative to any place else in the United States. And uh, it was a great, great value just by virtue of the fact that you still had this great lifestyle that I think a lot of us wanted. Right. Um, but you could attain that lifestyle for not a whole lot of money. Yeah. And, and live, live relatively easily and still have time to, uh, uh, you know, be creative and, ha- you know, have fun. Yeah. That is a, uh, it's like... That's the thing now, right? That's the thing that people are are uh, our family of musicians and artists being bummed out that they can't live here anymore. But the thing is, is like you got to move to Detroit now if you want to live that dream. It's not happening here anymore. It's where it's that's a it's in a book now. <laughs> you it, know it really, I mean? yeah. yeah. You just go buy the book and read it. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's not going to happen anytime soon here. No, and I, and. Uh, Honestly, I mean, I, you know, I don't know that we want the bottom to fall out necessarily, no, no. but, uh, but yeah, it is, uh, I, I talk to so many people who are, um, you know, either, you know, forced further and further out into the exurbs sure. or, uh, you know, or, or have to leave the city altogether. Um, and, and it's, it's rough. Yeah. Uh, you know, on the other hand, what I'm seeing now is that, you know, you have places like Lockhart where there's sort of a little, uh, scene of its own yeah. kind of popping up there as a result of people, you know, uh, people who've fled Austin. And Bastrop too has yeah, like, a, like yeah. a record store and like famous people live there. The guy yeah. from Entourage. It, <laughs> it's exactly. a whole fucking scene. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. So uh, where did you live back then? Like when did you live on campus? Were you a... When I first got here, I lived uh-huh. on campus. I lived in, the, lived in the dorms for a while. Did, did, my, did my time in, in Jester Center. Uh, you know, it was just the, 
second largest dorm in the world, I think, at the time. And yeah. two, two voting precincts and two zip codes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was, I mean, it, it, and it was, it was fine. But, yeah. uh, but I was ready to get out when I got, I lived there for two years and then uh, moved into what was, at the time, we thought of as right on the edge of Hyde Park. It was okay. right at the corner of uh, 47th and Depew, right near airport. Yeah. And it was right where the planes came in. Um, <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, well, what was the address? 4708 Depew. I was 4707. Really? You were in one of those shacks across the street? Yeah. Oh, wow. (laughs) We call them duplexes, but yeah. (laughs) Well, at the time I lived there, they were kind of like shacks, but... uh, No way. No, it was a fourplex. It was... uh, And now it's called like Hyde Park Place or something. But at the time, it was just a lady and her husband uh, who owned it. And it was, you know, had green shag carpeting and uh, checkerboard mirrors on on uh, on the walls. We We thought it was great. Um, the only thing that was a drag is when the prevailing winds would change and the planes would take off, uh, over our house. That mm. was kind of bad at, at, you know, you know, seven in the morning. Yeah. Do you but, remember having a conversation at home? Sorry, we're just going to no, discuss go ahead, go that neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> remember having a conversation at home and there was a natural pause. You knew to pause because the plane was overhead. There's no way you could hear each other. Oh yeah. <laughs> and then you carry on. And then if you're talking to somebody further west into Hyde Park, right. you know, then, then it's like, then the plane would be over them. Right. <laughs> so weird. Yeah. You got, you talk about the airports changing in the book. We talk a little bit about the old yeah. airport. I don't, I, you know, I guess it changed. I think the, the new one opened in 99. Yeah. So it was, so we, I think we do mention it. I think we mention it toward the very end that, you know, they, they, uh, open the new airport, but that's something else that people need to understand. I mean, now, you know, when Richard, you know, lives in the UK, when he wants to come visit, he, there's a nonstop flight to London. There was no such thing there. You couldn't even get a nonstop flight to New York city at that time. I don't think I mean, it was, yeah, it was, uh, you pretty much had to go through Dallas and Houston to go almost anywhere. Yeah. Uh, it's funny that the old airport features in these documentaries I'm putting together, um, because Carl Normal from Stretford yeah. uh, does an interview at the old airport. Oh, really? <laughs> just while he's waiting on a flight to go back to Manchester. <laughs> yeah, Richard Lynn was documenting all these bands back then, like the Chumps and Stretford. Yeah. And, and, and he's got acres of footage that he's let us have for the documentary side of things. Oh, that's awesome. And what's fascinating is not only Carl at the airport, but... Like the lack of fashion sense Austin had in the mid nineties. Oh yeah. Well, the, I mean the world. Yeah. Well, okay. I fair mean, enough. Look at Pearl Jam. That's, you know what I mean? Like. What, that's whatever. true. I, you know, but a, a friend of mine once told me that if she was changing planes someplace in uh, you know one of the hub airports like Atlanta or Houston, she could she could tell what gate was Austin just by looking at how disheveled the people sitting there were. <laughs> so. <laughs> It's really true, though. Yeah, when when this put together uh, as it is now, I mean, no. it, was, it was, and it was just, I mean, it was a town. It was a college town. Yeah, uh, you know, government was the big employer. Government, I, I say this uh, with affection, as a uh, almost a thirty-year uh, government employee is retired from the state of Texas. But you know, government employees weren't known for their sartorial sense or anything. I no. mean, they, it was, you know, it was very. Uh, so yeah, it was it was not a it was not a particularly fashionable place, and to the extent that people knew about Austin and wanted to come here, it was it was really a, mostly people from inside the state. Right. Yeah. 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 Because it wasn't. Yeah. It's it's not like now where you have like California people and like people from just everywhere wanting to come to Austin, and it's like I remember I watched the very final episode of The Office, 
and that was like the the when they were like oh and we're moving to austin the jim and pam yeah and i was like oh shit mm-hmm. now it's yeah like people on tv are moving here and my whole like, thing was like viciously yeah how how are, how are you going to make your scranton income work in austin <laughs> i was saying to someone the other day the only time us kids in england ever heard of austin like early to mid 90s was in spinal tap when the manager has to locate mandolin strings Oh, really? That's it. That's, That's the it. only time Austin got mentioned in pop culture. <laughs> well, was it the Stonehenge debacle? Didn't that take place in the movie in Austin where they dropped the Stonehenge model? Oh, really? Because, because the, the cocktail napkin had two dashes yeah. next to the... Ah, I mean, just instead yeah. of feet. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. As a sidebar, that was an Ian Gillen story from Deep Purple that wow. he gave to the producers. Oh, really? When he sang for Black Sabbath when Ozzy was in rehab. Um <laughs> He said that they had some kind of Stonehenge thing in the back as yeah, Black yeah. Sabbath would, and they had a small person dancing on top. And at the end of whatever song it was, the small person would jump off onto a mattress and walk off stage. Right. Ian told us he was so messed up. Uh, one night he thought it would be hilarious to remove the mattress. And so this poor guy jumps off Stonehenge or whatever, slams onto the deck and lands on the stage and has to be stretchered off. And so he told that story to, you know, the Spinal Tap people and it turned into that scene. Yeah. You know what's funny? There's the legendary shows. There's one that that I was here for I did not go to. But I worked at Whole Foods in Brody Oaks with Frenchie, which was one of the times in the book that I thought my name was going to come up. Look, everybody reads a book and is like, well, I wonder if they're going to... No, they didn't. <laughs> I was like, Frenchie named like everybody that worked at Whole Foods except me. Um, but um, to, to be fair to Frenchie, we interviewed him just at the tail end of COVID. Yeah. And our brains were all a little bit not quite on top yeah, of things. Yeah, you and I were masked up. We I remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Distance from here. Yeah. Yeah. That, I, I'm not mad about it. Okay. I, at all. Um, but also, since you brought that up... Yeah. Going back to what we said earlier, there's an entire scene that you were in the thick of. You oh, personally. Yeah. Oh, fuck, yeah. Needs, yeah, like if they wrote a book about treatment. it. I, yeah. I'm in the Hallman documentary, so that's oh, good. Well, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So if I wouldn't have been in that one, I would have freaked out. <laughs> um, but um, so, so the show is the Gigi Allen show at the Cavity. Oh, boy. Oh now, I had never heard of Gigi Allen or anything. And I, w- I was working in the front end as a cashier, Jennifer uh, Walker, who is Russell's yeah. wife yes. from Fuck Emos. And uh, a guy that I, I kind of thought was going to be in there, but he, uh, he wasn't. Paul Horsley, the, uh, he had Propeller Records. Oh, remember? yeah. I think he put yeah, out the, the Flying Saucers record. He put out the Flying Saucers yeah. record and yeah, several other things. He did a yeah. compilation, I think, I, I was on of his. his anyway, uh, he, he and Jennifer... It was the day after, or maybe two days after the show, and we're in there counting our drawers at the end of the night, and they, they're talking about I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? And they told me, and then I learned about Gigi Allen. I was just like, oh my God, but that that's, I never forgot that story. Like, there's a guy that wants to kill himself on stage, and he throws shit at people. Who's paying to go see this fucking guy? To get, and why? Of course, yeah. yeah. Were you at the show? I was not no. at the show, because okay, so I knew, I knew about Gigi yeah. Allen, and, I, and I, yeah, I was kind of just, you know, I mean, this is going to destroy my punk rock credibility, but I didn't want to pay to have a grown man throw okay, feces so at me. Okay, so we're all on the same page. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a normal, that's a normal yeah. sort of thing. 
Were there other, um, like, are there shows from that era that stood out? Because you guys really, like, you, you covered all the clubs uh, that were sort of uh, the part of the scene, all of the bands, sort of how radio fit into it from KTSB turning into KVRX and then KNAC coming on the scene and then uh, 101X being the radio station um, to the studios that made the thing. But um, were there shows, any shows that, that you're like, this was my number one show? This was like my... Oof. I don't know about number one, but one that stands okay, out stands is out. when we were at KVRX, we did local live during South by Southwest, and there was a band called Foreskin 500 that had driven, I think, all the way from California in one go and in, in a van without air conditioning, and they were so hot and sweaty and felt just grimy and disgusting. They had to remove all their clothes and just play naked in the studio just to feel better, and it's dunk it was awful <laughs> i've got these great photos of these guys just utterly naked playing in the studio yeah there's some great photos by the way in there of of the of the studio yeah thanks. and and shots like i what about you guys i mean i remember seeing i'm gonna since you talked about a, a touring band i'm gonna talk about a local band but i i just remember um you know seeing the pocket fisherman um a lot back then for the you know and i think one of the first times i remember seeing them was actually at the austin outhouse uh they they would play there every now and then uh you know when calvin russell or someone like that wasn't playing right uh but and, and i just yeah they were just everything i liked about you know both both punk rock and then you know big uh, big displays of you know they, they they sort of had one foot in, in punk rock and and one foot still left and like the rock with the two yeah, the two yeah. fingers up yeah. that that I'd grown up with yeah with the, with the blazing solos and and they were hilarious and they yeah. were kind of perverted yeah and uh, <laughs> yeah and it, it, I remember seeing them a bunch you know they, this was during the era when they would often play completely nude and uh, <laughs> their drummer Snoopy Melvin at the time. Um, yeah, drumming nude. I mean, it's you know, and your stick goes astray can be yeah, very, sure, uh, very dangerous. <laughs> but so it would be like it'd be three. I should say they were nude except, except the bassist Ron Williams, uh, who we actually saw last night yeah. playing with Jesus Christ Superfly. He's still doing it. Ron wouldn't take his clothes off, so it'd be like three grown men naked, <laughs> and then Ron completely clothed. And fair enough to Ron. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you got me thinking about something. This isn't to necessarily deep in our book, yeah. but at the same time, I was kind of a crew member, stagehand type person. And there was a venue, this is for all the new kids, at Slaughter and I-35 called South Park Meadows. Yeah. And that's now a shopping mall. Yeah. But it was the most beautiful grassy awesome. bowl yeah. with a stage at the bottom. And you sit on the grass, on your grass, and you watch R.E.M. or um, Reverend Horton Heat or whoever was touring through. But I remember this is how country it was. I would drive down a dirt path to get backstage to help unload the trucks and there was this rabid dog foaming at the mouth eyeballs bulging just crawling its way across this dirt track and i got oh that dog needs help but i'm going to keep driving and then seconds later i heard the gunshot behind me uh. Uh, that's how country Oh. Slaughter Lane. All the other was. shit was going on out there. Yeah. yeah. Right? That's yeah. Slaughter Lane is now the middle of the suburbs. Then yeah. it was the middle of the countryside. Yeah, it yeah. really was. And we had this amazing outdoor venue that's now concrete. Yeah, that was were you there at I think the one time Lollapalooza came to town, the original incarnation of Lollapalooza was in ninety five. 
and uh, it was like when Hole, I think, was one. Of I the, might have been in England for that. Oh, okay. That summer. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was in yeah. you know at the time. Uh, well, you know Jason Cohen. He's our mutual Absolutely. friend, journalist here in town. He's in Philadelphia right now, but he'd written a piece about Courtney and Hole and Rolling Stone that I think she had not cottoned to so to speak oh, no. and she i think she called him out from the stage and said like jason cohen you're not you're never forgiven or something oh, like that wow. yeah <laughs> i know that had the uh... it was always fun when she came to town something always happened <laughs> oh yeah there's the story of her going to emos there was a there was the emos yeah. thing where oh. someone got a hold of her purse yeah. and got a hold of of uh her her american express card um you know which which not necessarily going to condone that sort of behavior, but it does make for a good story. And then, but then yeah. would sign the credit card receipt, Kurt Cobain. Yeah, <laughs> it was pretty dark. That was pretty. Yeah, it was pretty dark. But it was a dark time. I mean, yeah, yeah. But uh, and then we had, uh, you know, there, there was time at Hole in the Wall where I think she uh, spent spent a fair amount of time in the bathrooms there. Which you know, if you've been in the bathrooms, oh right, the wall, that's a Debbie story in there that yeah. someone told her during South by Southwest or something that she was locked in the bathroom. Yeah, I actually <laughs> being very sniffy. Just a couple of weeks ago, I went in the women's room at Hole in the Wall for oh, the yeah. first time because it, you know they're unisexual now. Okay, uh, you know, keeping with the times and oh. modern, and so yeah. But I'd, I'd never been in the you know if you walk up to the you know the, the first one on the on the left. Never been in there before, and it, you know, uh, it's other than the urinal, it's pretty much just as gross as the men's room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are you you're still playing? Still playing a little yeah. bit. Yeah, I'm in a band called the Ron Titter Band, and we play. Uh, oh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, we play out every now and then. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I never saw Noodle, and I never saw Cheeses, but I did see Peen Beats a few times. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You never saw the Leather Show? <laughs> no. <laughs> If you look at the top of the book, there is a man astride wearing a spiky leather thong. Oh, I thought that was Gigi Allen. Honestly, that's what I thought. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Yeah. His, his parents are so proud that those photos oh, yeah. have resurfaced. No, I, I, nothing, I don't think there's as much smeared on me. I think Gigi's, toward, Gigi's, Gigi's in there. He's toward Gigi's, the bottom, I Gigi's think. Gigi's on, on 16 Deluxe. Yeah. The 16 Deluxe looks like their, their junior high photo. Yeah, well, yeah. We were a lot younger then, weren't yeah, we? Yeah, a lot oh, yeah. younger. Um, uh, so what I was saying before that when you cover all of the different sort of aspects of the scene that were going on from the TV to the red, uh, sound exchange was such a huge part of it. And what I learned from your book, I didn't realize it was, it was like a, a family to record exchange in Houston or that. Yeah, it yeah. was, it was a, uh, actually an offshoot of, of the original, uh, record exchange awesome. in, in Houston on, it was on Westheimer for many years yeah. and, and that, that. Sound exchange, and they they eventually also became Sound Exchange. But that Sound Exchange is still, I believe, they're still in business. They oh, moved really? over to the east side of Houston, um, wow. and, and uh, yeah, they've they've kept they've somehow kept it going. But yeah, I mean, that was as a kid, that was where I, I learned about you know everything to the left of one hundred one KLOL, KLOL, which yeah. was like the big album rock station yeah, yeah. in Houston. That and K true, uh, the Rice University right. station where you could pick that up. But you know, if you wanted to buy all the records, uh, that was where to go, and you get the used stuff, and so it was relatively cheap, yeah. and you could amass a pretty decent record collection. So. Well, that that sound exchange, I, I I had this girlfriend, and she lived in that 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 quadruplex right behind it. Oh yeah, for like a year and a half, and uh, in between that and the and the and the Jewish community center, um, and so like it was like, I mean, it's like. 
like as cool as like having a 7-Eleven like next door to your house or something like like you just think of something it was almost like Spotify or, or like yeah. iTunes like if I wanted something I could go over there chances are I could find it for two bucks used yeah so like yeah I went through a, a big Todd Rundgren thing and I remember just like going getting an album listening to it going get another one you know what i mean amassing my collection and yeah yeah that's the way to do todd rungren i think yeah yeah definitely <laughs> and that was a, that was a paul horsley thing too he was like how can you like i've heard your music how are you not into this guy and i'm like well i like him but i'm not like into him and then he was like go get this record yeah so but that was such a great the zines getting all of the that's where i would get my daniel johnston cassettes and did you keep hold of them no oh no, sorry. I mean, just for yeah. their worth. I know. These days. Yeah, I know. That's amazing. I almost had them on the show, but it was just, it was, our experience was so weird when we were talking about it that I was just like, I don't, I don't, I don't think I have the, I don't have the skills to talk to a dude like this and get something across other than. It was interesting when he came on the Austin Music Network, um, it was just him and his guitar, like no handlers or anything like that. And you know, because it was a TV station, we'd have a a TV up in the corner showing what we're broadcasting. Yeah. And he was just focused on that TV all the time. He was just staring at it as he was playing <laughs> and singing. It was amazing. Yeah. He did, he, his gaze never left the screen. Yeah. Yeah. You guys know Bale Allen? He, he The artist, and he had a gallery here. Hmm. What was the gallery? Bale Allen. Gallery. Oh. <laughs> Think, no, think he moved up to four. He's he's one of Terry's sons. Terry, oh, Terry, oh, yeah, Terry's yeah, okay. brother. Terry, oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Anyway, uh, he tried to do. He had a, a Daniel Johnston show at his place when it was over before he moved to Fort Worth. And I went over there, and he was like, "Hey, here's the, whoever it was that was looking after Daniel at the time, and you guys sure. should sit down and talk about doing a podcast." And it was just, I mean, it just I didn't have the, I don't know how you would do that. <laughs> yeah, I I, uh, I think I did a, a phone interview with him once, uh, right around the time the Devil and Daniel Johnston right, movie right. came mm. out, and uh, it was it was okay, but yeah, it, you know, it, you do kind of have to go a certain way, and uh, you know, I did around that same time interviewed uh, Rocky Erickson, and <laughs> fortunately now now we're going into the you know talking about the in memoriam section, but yeah, uh, I I got a chance to talk with Margaret Moser beforehand before I talked to Rocky, and she was just like. Talk to him about monster movies and animation, and you'll be fine. And so, was, yeah. So I kind of, I kind of did, and it did kind of, you know, did kind of bring him out a little bit more. So yeah. God, dude, everyone we just talked about is dead. I know it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Mar I mean, I'm not laughing at it. I just it's like crazy. Well, yeah. I mean, that was one of the sad things. Greg had this great idea, and and it's a lovely idea to have an in memoriam yeah. section at the back, and you know, being a physical book. There were times we wanted to stop press because we've learned that Miss Laura has passed away, the manager of the Blue Flamingo. Right. Or we've learned someone else, or, or, or um, Frank Kozak has passed away. It's like, ah, oh, right. we can't get it in there. But, you know, they're not forgotten. No. I think no. it was just that knowledge that we we were going to have that problem. It was kind of a just a, a, a sucky little black cloud out there amidst everything else. But yeah. uh, it is what it is, you know. There's a couple of people I reached out to that I hadn't talked to in years. Uh, when I was reading the book, that Dave Thompson was one of them. Oh, I was just like, holy yeah. shit, I've not seen that. I'm like, how have I, like, how, I didn't forget him. It's just like all of a sudden I didn't see him. And I, I remember, I was like, shit. I mean, 
I love that guy. Everyone who talks about him says exactly what I you've just said. I fucking love that guy. Everybody. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. And I believe he's back in Austin now. Oh, good. He's either in Austin or he's in, he might be in Fort Worth. I can't remember. Sure. But yeah, he's, uh, yeah. He was, he was one of the guys I, and we definitely tried to talk to him and it was kind of two ships. We never could quite uh, find a time to do it. But, um, but Dave was right in the thick of things and just total, a total professional and at the same time just super supportive yeah. of, of everybody and just a just a real nice guy he was always you know he he was nicer to to us and and noodle than i think we had a right to have anybody be nice to us <laughs> at the time well he you had know? this yeah. way of being able to be uh the authority figure without being an asshole yeah which it was hard for a lot of people <laughs> that's a difficult like tightrope to walk is to be the nice leader the benevolent boss. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think, you know, I just think about emos in general and kind of how that place was run. Um, you know, the, a lot of what they did was sort of presaged by what happened at the cavity, but they, but, you know, they ran it, you know, like a business. Yeah. And, and at the same time, they were, they were super cool. And I, I always, you know, when I think about, you know, the legacy of that club, you got to think about, you know, people like Noah Polk going on and doing Eastside Pies uh, yeah, you know, there's a lot of people who work Graham there. Williams? Graham, Graham Williams, oh, yeah. of course. Yeah, a lot of people who who kind of got cut their teeth at emos are Jason now doing. Jason Sabala, Jason Sabala, yeah. of course. A lot of those guys have gone on to do really cool things, and I, I'm sure you know. I know the ones we've talked to anyway, and and you know, hopefully we'll talk to some more at some point. You know, talked about how that was a really uh, formidable uh, time. So. so it was interesting too. Uh, Graham, uh, why am I fucking all the Grams are the Brown Hornet. Uh, oh, uh, Graham uh, Reynolds. Graham Reynolds. Yes. His sort of part of, in that scene was really interesting to, to, to get a, like find out about. Sorry. Yeah. And Graham, um, I, I actually got to know him, uh, because I, I think right around the mid nineties, I, my roommate was, uh, Buzz Moran, uh-huh. Who does a lot of sound work and and uh, has done done a lot of things. And at the time, we were, uh, you know, two guys just kind of hanging out, having a good time. Well, we were we were doing a fanzine about all you can eat buffets called Hey Hey Buffet. And but but he was uh, he had a he had a four track and he would bring this this guy over to record. Uh, you know, who had very long hair, very kind of very snappy dresser. Yeah, but he always seemed kind of like a, a little bit taciturn, like really intense. Like I, you know, and I, I, and they would go in and record and it was all on can. So I couldn't hear anything they were doing, Right. but they would just go into Buzz's bedroom and be in there for a really long time. And then one day Buzz played it for me and I was just like, Holy shit, this guy's amazing. Yeah. You know? And, and, uh, and, and yeah, and he's just kind of kept on doing, you know, super ambitious, really, really nice guy, but just, uh, you know, very intense and very serious about the music, and and at the same time very serious about presenting it in uh, kind of unconventional ways that that makes it maybe more accessible to people who might not necessarily uh, go down the road of uh, you know you know kind of avant classical music or jazz or uh, anything like that. And so he was he was one of those guys who was playing. Uh, play, you know, playing at emos. Yeah. Um, you know, when they weren't doing really loud punk rock with guitars, uh, you know, he would come in and do his thing. And that was one of the, I think, the first places where he was, uh, you know, playing on a pretty regular basis. 
But that well, takes us back to what you were saying at the beginning about all these different scenes sort of intermingling. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's Graham doing the Golden Arm Trio and then Brown Hornet and then right. that becomes Golden Hornet because right. Peter's doing his classical right, thing. Right, right. But then you've also got the Tosca String Quartet sort of partnering with rock bands and country yeah. bands. And it's a mishmash of styles that all come together. And um, I can't remember who it was, but I, I think it might have been Frenchy was saying... You know, you've got the guys from The Sword standing next to maybe the guys from Spoon standing next to the guys from Trail of Dead. And they're all kind of disparate scenes. And the guys from Fastball, they're all shoulder to shoulder at whatever gig is happening at the hole in the wall or whatever. Yeah. And and then the women from Tosca, you get them to do strings. Uh, I think, you know, I remember Carl Normal again at... We, we talk a lot about how a lot of things come back to Carl Normal from Stratford, but uh-huh. and I just thought of one other thing that I don't think we we mentioned earlier, but you know on the on the Crossing the Line record that Unclean uh, put out on on one of the songs I'm blanking on which song it was, but Sarah Nelson from uh, Tosca String Quartet plays uh, cello. Easily the most rock and roll cello player there is. Oh, it, I'm pretty I, sure. No, no doubt, no doubt about that. <laughs> they toured with David Byrne for goodness' sake. Yeah, yeah. They toured the world. She with played David with. Byrne. She played with. Page and plant. Oh, it's you know? amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's the same to it. Like those, those guys, it's the, everything's the same for them. Everything is exactly the same. You know what I mean? It's all just, they're just playing with people. doesn't matter if it's David Byrne or, or we did a thing with them with uh, this band, um, Skyrocket, that we did a, a, an ELO tribute thing with them. Oh, years, yeah. Like 15, Absolutely. 16 years ago or something. Yeah, it's yeah. fucking awesome. So fun, man. Trish and Darren, they do. They're just amazing, aren't they? They're just amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's hard to believe we've been doing that shits for so long. Yeah, like we're still still doing it all the time. It's weird, um, but it's fun. Um, uh, I was just about to ask you about something from then. Um, about the, uh, I lost my my train of thought when it came to that uh, with that Tosca thing, but um, oh, chances that was a great. <laughs> That was one of the, I was really excited to see that that place got some love because that place is kind of fallen through the cracks. Like people, like I bring it up to people because that was one place where they, uh, Sandra was always really cool about letting me play there. And like, you know, when I first was getting my shit together here. Yeah, Sandra, I mean, she, I mean, I I've, I don't think I've ever actually met Sandra. I, I remember playing there. She's elusive. Yeah, well, I, I don't know if she's elusive, but I know I know that we we talked about having her. T- you know, talk, we we wanted to interview for the book, and she deferred. And so, um, fortunately, uh, Spike Gillespie had done a really nice piece in the Chronicle around the time that Chances uh, closed. So, uh, we we were able to uh, leverage some of Spike's really good work. But oh, um, good. but yeah, the 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 Chances uh, piece I think is important. Um, well, for a number of reasons. I mean, musically, I think just the the number of things that Chances presented uh, was was huge, and then the fact that you know you have this uh, you know uh, you know lesbian bar that you know Sandra very deliberately kind of tried to open things up and uh, you know make it to where it could still be a, a you know a bar where. Uh, you know, everyone could go. Yeah, where everyone could go, yeah. but they, but, but it was still, but it would still be a, primarily a lesbian right. bar. Right. But, and, but also, I think what. Sorry to jump on you there, but when Greg says open it up, let, chances as a lesbian bar used to have its windows blacked out, 
So no one oh. could see who was inside there. Right. So, so you, it was a safe place to go. Place. Late yeah, 80s yeah, yeah. Texas. Yeah. And yeah. we just did a, an interview with the reformed Meat Joy, uh, Gretchen Phillips amongst uh-huh. others, yeah, yeah. band. And they said that was a huge moment for chances. A lot of patrons left because they didn't want to be exposed. Outed, yeah. Exactly, and they felt unsafe suddenly. And then a lot of other patrons loved it because they said, we're here and we've got to be bold and make a statement. And um, it was a really strong statement that Sandra made. Wow. Well, and I think even into the... I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I think there's, there's there's the musical history of chances, but it also just has a huge place in... The, the history of L, the LB, the LGBT history yeah. in Austin. And, uh, and, and, you know, we talk about the, you know, the eighties, not necessarily being a safe time to be out, but even, you know, in the nineties, I mean, you had the defense of marriage act, which, uh, you right. know, every, everyone in Texas, uh, Democrats included voted for, and you had the, uh, at one point the city wanted to extend, uh, uh, benefits to, uh, city employees who had domestic partners and there was a referendum on it, and it, it got revoked after the referendum. So for all of Austin's liberal uh, leanings and, and perception, I mean, there, there was, you know, there was things like that that happened, too. Yeah. And um, now 30 years later, you have a Speaker of the House who wants to do that again. Exactly. <laughs> oh, God. I yeah. forget about I him mean, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're, 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 you're lucky you have the escape valve to Cambridge, Richard. <laughs> well, things get weird over there, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. We've got crazy people in we our got politics. crazy people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, what, like, what venue do you think, like, what venues now sort of are carrying the torch for what? that was well last night okay where are we now october, oh the parlor october obviously. 28th yes. greg deliberately chose to put on a big rock show at the parlor yeah right yeah. because yep. i uh, throughout this project greg's been saying they're the closest thing to the blue flamingo well there's mat- the, the matinees i think the way that they're yeah. uh you know they're they're bringing people out and, it, and it's you know i i have a special affinity because you know they're they're bringing out uh, you know, some of the, you know, some of the older bands, I guess, or some of the, the older people who are in newer bands uh, and, and presenting them and, you know, people of a certain vintage can can get out before it gets too hard to but see when you're band, driving home at night. The uh, new but, bands, like Yard but, but the, the, and, and the John Pauls who were on stage last night, who you asked to play, they were amazing discovery know, yeah. for me anyway. That's what's wonderful. really impressive, I think, you know, and, and you know, we'll talk about the, the younger bands and the cool stuff they're doing, too. But, but, but first, we have to talk about our own generation, I guess. But, yeah, the, the, seeing the new, uh, you know, the new uh, groups that have formed uh, by people who've been in the scene for a long time, like, you know, like yard work with uh, uh, to- Toby, Toby Marsh from the Motards. and On Ken- Living Pins to Living Pins, Gary. yeah, Living Pins, Carrie Clark yeah. uh, from 16 Deluxe and Pam Peltz. I mean, See, but Pam always reminds me when I introduce her to, let's say, a journalist, as I did yesterday and said, you know, they, they, they're a new band. She said, well, we were around in the 90s, you know. The they Living were. Pins did oh, really? start in the 90s. I didn't know that. No, well, we yeah. didn't, right? Because then Carrie got swept away yeah. doing 16 Deluxe. Yeah, that's that's true. So technically, 
technically they're a nineties band, but it yeah. was, but yeah, I think 16, Del- yeah, 16 deluxe just exploded so mm-hmm. quick that it didn't necessarily. And I wish Ursa major had exploded like that too. I loved that. Band. They were a very good that band. band. Yeah. Yeah. That was Pam Peltz band with Susie Martinez and Andy McGuire. Okay. I remember Andy. She's the, she was the one that was in spoon originally. Yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the Stratford record that had like the toy, the, the Fisher Price kind of TV? Oh, that like was a, Crossing the Line. That, on, on I Unclean. loved that album so yeah. much. Yeah, I, I keep I, I've been talking to Carl a little bit in this this whole process, and uh, I, I, I'm hoping um, maybe he'll he'll remaster it at some point and get it back out there because yeah. uh, it's it's yeah it's a fantastic record. I mean, Car- Carl uh, just as a person, I think was respond. You know, he he did this fanzine that kind of got a lot of people um, talking about a lot of the bands that were involved. He would put on these Sid Vicious birthday bash shows uh, that, that would kind of bring everybody together. So everybody kind of see what everybody else was doing. Um, he actually was the first person to put Brit Daniel uh, on a stage in Austin. And and then on top of that, I mean, Stretford just had these, these great songs. Great songs. Yeah. 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 It's yeah, funny. Um, Star in Wagner from the Cavity Club talks about this zine that um, Carl put out called No Reply. Yeah. And within that, we talk about it in the book and the documentary, because it's a really pivotal moment, I think. Yeah. Like Carl was doing a review of a show of a band called Happy Family. Uh-huh. And he said the band were amazing, but the sound at the Ritz wasn't very good because it's all cavernous right, right, right. and it's difficult. Yeah. He said, we need a little club that's our clubhouse for our bands. And Starin said he read that zine, that article in that zine. He went, that's what I've got to do. And that's uh, when he started the cavity. Yeah. yeah. Him and Dave, Dave Herman and, and Jimmy, Jimmy Bradshaw. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, place, uh, that place, I mean, I'm not going to lie. It freaked me out. <laughs> I don't like, think you're alone. No, a couple of times I went there was to see Russell. And it's so funny because my main connection to that scene was working at Whole Foods with Jennifer. And then there was this girl whose name I can't remember, but she dated John Sanchez. And that, oh, like, that's like, hey, come see my boyfriend. It was all like, come see my husband's band. Like you'd go like, sure, I'll go see him. And then you end up seeing these amazing fucking bands. Yeah. I mean, John was a great pusher of 16 Deluxe when they first started. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but, uh, you know, you're definitely not alone in being freaked out by by the cavity. I mean, <laughs> one of the things I think that we that we learned in, in writing this, because, uh, you know, I think my, my perception going in was just like, you know, the cavity was sort of the spark of this whole yeah. scene. And and a lot of the guys I talked to uh, said, yeah, absolutely. That that was it. But um, every single woman we talked to uh Pretty much said, even if they sort of liked going there, even if they played there, they were kind of like it was. It was really kind of scary. It was not. It was not a. It was not necessarily a friendly place for, uh, you know, a, 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 a woman, single lady. To be in, a single okay. lady to yeah, be in, yeah. and and uh, so yeah, so that that was, uh, you know, I think one of the things I I took away from this project was to you know not not to d- diminish the overall importance of the cavity, but it, it certainly. Um, you know, it's one. It's just one of those things where you know, you, you once you. It's it's one of the things that I keep thinking about. Like, you know, every, every time I think about um, music, and then I think about okay, well, this is hard. It's like, well, okay, well, try try being a woman and doing it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and it's it was just one of those one of those little gut check moments that I can anytime I think maybe I kind of know what's going on. You still have one of those, and it's like, oh yeah, that makes it a lot that makes it a lot harder. So I th- I think that was part of why. Uh, 
we wanted to do an oral history is yeah. because I really wanted to make sure that, um, you know, that, that, you know, it was, it was the women talking, not us talking about what the women were saying. Right. But, yeah. but we, and within that context, uh, Lisa Rickenberg from um, the inhalants uh-huh. also pointed out that within that context of what you've just said, the red river strip was still, still felt a lot safer than sixth street at the time. Right. Because sixth street was kind of frat central. Yeah. And there was a lot of punk bashing and queer bashing going on yeah. from, you know, the guys who'd come down from Fort Hood military base to do yeah. whatever they did. And uh, so she said, even though the club it, themselves maybe felt a bit strange, they were safer than Sixth Street. Yeah. That's good to know. Well, there was also like, um, I don't know, there was something about emos like. I remember when Emo's opened here and going there. I I know I don't know if I was there when it like the day it opened or, but sometime pretty early on because I used to go to the one in Houston oh, and yeah. I was stoked that it was open here. Like I was a, uh, uh, yeah, I was very excited that it opened here, and I loved going there and it was a great place. It seemed like a place where people would go to start off the night because you could just go there for free. Drinks were super cheap. Meet up, have a drink. Whatever's happening there is happening, and then you go wherever you're going to go afterwards and see something. Yeah, that then, was kind of the model. I mean, and yeah. It, yeah, and you could present, you know, these these touring bands that yeah. you would pay, you know, fifteen twenty bucks uh, to see in San Francisco or Los Angeles or New York. Um, they could present those bands for free and, and right. pay them out of the bar, which is uh, which is kind of just unbelievable. I think. You know, so you, yeah, I mean, you'd see like. You know, no means no, or yeah. uh, Jesus Lizard, or John Spencer Blues Explosion. I mean, Killdozer. I mean, yeah, there was just a ton of just a ton of great stuff. Who was there? Was there. a band that that wanted to keep playing there, even though they're in the book, and I can't remember who it was that they they were going to go somewhere else with a higher ticket, and make more money. They were like, no, we just want to play at Emos. Was oh. it Offspring? Yes, that's exactly who it was. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they the, them, and also the same thing happened at Liberty Lunch with. What's Darius Rucker's band? Oh, Hootie and the Blowfish. Hootie and the Blowfish. Yeah. So Hootie and the Blowfish came to play Liberty Lunch because it was that kind of venue, right? They were sort of the MTV 120 Minutes venue. And it was the UTOU game. So everyone's at the stadium. Yeah. Uh, It was freezing. So no one's going out anyway. And barely anyone showed up. Uh, And Darius was full of apologies to Mark and Jeanette and said, sorry, this is not what we do. We'll come back and we'll play a full show and we'll get you some money. Wow. Uh, But between that night and the next time they could play Liberty Lunch, they'd blown up into Hootie and the Blowfish. Yeah. And the manager phones Mark and Jeanette and said, yeah, I can't believe I'm asking you this, but Darius promised he would play there and he wants to (laughs) stick. And apparently they maybe did two nights, you know, fully sold out. So yeah. yeah, you know, if you treat the bands right on the way up, you know, maybe they'll uh, they'll help you out once they're big and famous. You just reminded me of something. I saw Mark and Jeanette for the first time in years at a thing at the parlor last October. Was okay. that affiliated with this? No, book the, at all. I, Not that I'm aware of. <laughs> I want to I want to say that that um, there there is a Liberty Lunch historical project. There, there is. Foot. I, I, oh, I yes. believe it's a documentary good. film yes. they're, they're putting together. Which yeah. is, I mean, that's a lot of work in itself, right? That's a huge story going yeah. back to when it was a restaurant, right? Well, or going all the way back to when it was a, a wagon yard. I mean, you know, that's one of the things we kind of taught. And we, we, we kind of scratched the surface, I think, in our, our intro. But um, it's, it's kind of like right at the heart of 
where Austin started, literally. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of like where they where they said we're going to put a town here. Yeah. It's going to be the capital of the empire. Oh, to, interesting. You know, stretching all the way to the Pacific. Yeah. And uh, you know, there's like there's like a like a low water crossing. Uh, and, and that was where kind of, kind of where Liberty Lund, that's why there was a wagon yard there. Um, so yeah, wow. uh, there, there's, yeah, it, it, it goes, interesting. History. it goes way back, Yeah, <laughs> you know, but before the, you know, even, even, you know, before the whole music thing, but just, yeah, just doing the music, uh, would, would be, um, yeah, do, doing that. If somebody really wants to dig, you can go very, very deep into that. And yeah. they're, a, they're a chapter in our book, and Greg does a great job, yeah. you know, documenting the history of it. But, you know, Mark and Jeanette's history of, you know, booking the Continental Club as well, which right. is his own thing. But now the Continental Club's having its own documentary film being made oh, about really? it. Yes. Well, that makes sense. Oh, I mean, yeah. and then the back rooms having its own yeah, documentary film being made one. about it. Like they've they've completed it. They've submitted to South by okay. Southwest, and I saw one of the guys last night. And you know, fingers crossed, they get accepted because that's uh, a wonderful project too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in a strange club, <laughs> the back room. Yeah, I didn't. It didn't. Uh, it was not a place I hung out very much. I, I played there a few times when I was in Mr. Rocky. I remember playing there, just going like, "Why, why are we playing? This is not. This is not where we should be." Right? Did now. they have the tickets back then, where you'd get the tickets? No, we we luckily we we sort of were able to to. Oh, get fucking tickets, man! Jesus Christ! Yeah, Steamboat did that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but but it was. I mean, for a band that like. Nobody knew. I right, mean, because right. that was, you know, so so the, the very first gig that wasn't in somebody's backyard that I did in Austin was right. at, was at the back room. And it, and it was, yeah, they handed you a stack of these <laughs> color-coded was tickets. Was it like on a Monday or Tuesday or something? Oh, yeah, it was like on a Monday <laughs> or Tuesday. And, and every, yeah, it's like, okay, every one of these tickets that comes through the door that's your color, you're going to get a dollar for that. And, uh, but, but you know, and, and if you want to use the... The smoke machine that's going to cost you twenty five dollars. <laughs> so, but but they, I, I got to give them credit. They put us on the stage in the first place. You know, yeah. I mean that was yeah. the same stage where I saw the Ramones for the first time, and uh, you know there were a lot of great touring bands that came through there. And I mean, you know, the hard rock and metal scene was uh, that was the the home base uh, for that. And uh, and so so I yeah, but it was but yeah, it was it was a, we we played there a few times back in the day, and it was you know we we were always sort of like uh you know we're we're kind of sidling into this this scene a little bit but yeah. um but but they but they had us so and ju- just yeah. to add a geographical aspect to the historians listening the back room was where emos now is, is. Yeah. where where em- live the live nation version of emos is now well i mean emos the concert venue not emos the bar yeah cuz that's exactly. that's the one they only open if they have to for a thing they're not just like open now. We can't just go get a drink. There. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it, you know, it, it is in it is an evolved <laughs> business model, as they say. <laughs> it's so weird when you go in there because it it is weird. And the new Antones had that for me when I first walked in. I was like, this is almost like uh, the Hard Rock Cafe like version of Antones. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. But well, it, but it, they all start out that way, and it the spirit's still there. Well, probably by the time. You know, I, I mean, you you, you might have been around a little bit before uh, before then, but I mean, when I when I got here, Antones was on Guadalupe, right? 
which would had been like a pizza parlor. And but they'd already been through at least two or three locations right. at that point. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Been to on, me, that's the original. Yeah. One that's to you but, as well. I think, yeah. Yeah. For me, that was what. Yeah. That that was Antone's right across from where Antone's Records still uh, exists. And they had Knack. Was it Knack or One Hundred One? I can't remember. Somebody did a night there because I remember doing a couple of shows there as a night of. I think they did. They did have a night there. Yeah. yeah. I I don't think I ever played that. Um, yeah. See, that's another scene, right? We talked about this earlier, the whole Antones thing. I'm not, I know people have written about Antones and Clifford sure. and Susan and, and everything, but even just that sort of, it was sort of a shack, you know, it's low ceiling sure, wooden yeah. building up on Guadalupe yeah. where you get to learn about Swamp Rock for the first time or whatever. Sure. It's just amazing, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was so I've spoiled. Seen, I mean, I saw John, John Lee Hooker there for crying out loud. Wow. Well, I, 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 I saw him. I mean, I basically, you know, is everybody standing up? He walked out on stage. I was at the back of the room and, you know, kind of nodded to everybody. And then he sat down. And then for the rest of the show, I just heard him. Yeah. But but still, Johnny sure. Hooker. Yeah. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I saw a lot of stuff there at that one. But the, the when it opened on Fifth Street was when I really started playing there. Yeah. And yeah. I think because they kind of loosened their the kind of music that they had there. That's true. I mean, yeah. they still had the the blues, but then, yeah, they kind of opened things up. Well, I think that maybe they'd already kind of started doing that on Guadalupe to say, well, if they're doing Canac night. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To some degree. Maybe so. I think, cause I remember doing a show and it was like, I might be wrong, but it was like Spoon, David, Garza, and other bands that of young people. Yeah. That wasn't normally the thing. Young right? people. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was the thing was there was kind of like this thing when I moved here and, and like lived in the Congress house. And then there was that whole scene of like people from the generation before. And so I was always like this weird kid. Like, I don't want to go hear this, these guys. I, I don't want to go to the, I can't remember what was the place that they were all going when I first moved here. And I was like, 311? Yeah, that was 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 like straight up like blues. Like it was just like one, four, five land where it just was like, I was just like, how are you guys going to see these people play the same song over and over again every fucking night? Like there's someone uh, told a story that they were walking down Sixth Street once and, you know, you could hear all the music (laughs) coming out and there was someone on one stage playing blues rhythm and the solo from another club fit perfectly. That's hilarious. <laughs> it almost seems that's perfect. Um, there was one time, this has nothing to do with any of this stuff, but it might make you guys laugh. There was one time that uh, we, when I was in Mr. Rocket Baby, we had the same booking agent, uh, this guy, Paul Nugent, that had that 214 thing in Dallas. The whole oh, We yeah. were part of his thing. And we did a lot of shows with Deep Blue Something. And those guys, I remember they got wireless stuff. And we got to Steamboat. <laughs> and, and during the show, the bass player's thing got mixed with the bass player from the dude playing Toulouse across the street. So all of a sudden, a reggae bass line out of time and out of key started coming through like a Deep Blue Something pop oh, wow. song. It was amazing. That is very it spinal amazing. tap, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, not quite the same thing as having the uh, the air traffic control. Right, yeah, yeah right. close enough, right? But yeah. it was good. It was oh, nice. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, so, uh, oh, Sweatbox Studios, that was a place I never recorded, but was that in that 
that ass man building where everyone rehearsed and like flying saucers had a room and I believe it was it was at like the corner fifth. yeah corner of Fifth and San Jacinto yeah, that's and it. there were a bunch of like loan officers on the ground floor yeah and and I, I did a little bit of research on that building apparently it, you know at one time that had been like the the city's uh, like the cotton exchanges like the cotton exchange offices oh really because because that was where the the rail uh, there was a rail terminus right there you can still. I don't know if you can still see it, but I know when I moved here, a lot of those streets down there, they still kind of had. Uh, well, they had know, the tracks within had, them, didn't they? Well, they and still they were they were buried was, in the asphalt, yeah. but you could see the tracks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then that's why that apartment complex is called the rail. The rail, yard. yeah, the rail yard, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that so, was also co-op radio, right? Co-op radio was there, um, and yeah, there was I, there was <laughs> upstairs. They had uh, they had practice spaces, and I remember one time practicing there and. The ceiling, I guess it had been a rainstorm and the ceiling had leaked. And, but we were just, we had to practice. So we found some pallets. I don't know why they were, I don't know why there were pallets there. But yeah, we all stood on pallets because there's was, there was like standing water on the floor, plugged in our amps and, and practiced. It seems and like that place didn't, was like. Didn't die. Uh, but yeah, but it was, yeah, that was. So in a, there's, that, a, there's a reason the chapter about Sweatbox has its name that yeah. Greg came up with. And it's this poor fellow. I don't know if he's a poor fellow. He's no, he, dead, he was he, not a poor. He was a lot of things. He wasn't poor. He's passed away since. But uh, he was quail hunting, I believe, with the former vice president. Oh, Dick right. Cheney. He's the guy Harry, that. Harry that, Whittington. Yeah. He's the guy that got the got the shot in the face. Got shot in the face. Yeah. Yeah. yeah by Dick Cheney. And, and he owned effects. this building we're talking about. That's so weird. And that same yeah. month or week that he got shot his building burnt down i think that was oh. it yeah i think that was in the, the same month or right 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 yeah it was it was uh yeah a little run of bad luck there yeah. that is freaky man <laughs> poor guy and then then his press conference when he comes out of hospital he apologized to the cheney family for all the trouble he caused <laughs> <laughs> that's insane shows you what kind of guy dick cheney is like, yeah but like, to be fair i mean i know harry, harry whittington cut a pretty good deal with co-op to, oh, get, well, to get them to get great. them in there okay. um you know because we talked to talked to jim ellinger a little bit who is one of the, the founders of co-op um yeah without jim you you know it, it's pretty safe to say that like co-op would you know co-op wouldn't be co-op without him and and he uh yeah i think he leveraged some maybe some family oh, interesting uh, you know uh, friendships or something like that and and yeah, so that was how uh, Harry went, and you know, and it, it turned out okay. I mean, they uh-huh. cashed out. There's a a nice Weston there on the property now. Yeah, and, uh, yeah so. <laughs> Do you talk to the savvy often? Uh, I, I, you know, I don't think I've ever we've ever actually met. Oh. Um, I mean, I, I I know the writing, but I don't okay. think I, I'm not sure we've ever actually met face to face. I was gonna do the. Uh... Ask him to tell you the story. If you're ever talking socially, be like, "Hey, Johnny Gowdy, asked me to ask you." Tell me the story. He knows exactly what I'm talking. The about. story. The story. Okay. I'll, it was a weird, a weird experience we had one night with another person telling us <laughs> their childhood stories that, like, were so weird. They started getting like disturbing, but it's hilarious. Oh wow! It, it well, is now, hilarious. Yeah. And also, he gets so excited about it. Like, he gets so excited about the story. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to. You're gonna start, have to ask him. I can't have to get him it. on my radar. Somehow. Richard, if you want, when he's gone, give me a call. I'll tell you the story. It's, it's worth hearing. It's <laughs> All right, funny. done and done. Um, is the documentary gonna happen now that the book is done? Uh, I mean, yeah, do you need it. It's is turned it? into a series. Oh, because I don't know when to stop. Right, right, <laughs> right. I don't know 
when I've got enough work, I'll give myself some more. So I've sure. completed the uh, episode about the cavity. Okay. I've pretty much completed the episode about the blue flamingo. Okay. And I say pretty much because more stuff comes to light. Sure. For instance, Sarah Carlson, who was in New Girl Art Trend Band, was also filming everything at the time. And she's only just now um, got her tapes digitized. Right, right. So we're talking about what we can work on oh, together. Cool. So Blue Flamingo episode, though, goes into Sound Exchange as well. Mm. It goes into zine writing. Right. Because that was all part right. of that. And it goes into the garage scene and Estrus Records, who just put their book out. You know, that was all part of Blue Flamingo as well, because Tim Kerr was right. working a lot at Sweatbox, and he would record a lot of Estrus bands at Sweatbox. So that's the Blue Flamingo right. episode. And that's pretty much done. And I'm working currently on one on Emos, featuring the fuck Emos, amongst awesome. many other bands. And then I'm doing one, I'm carving out Trance Syndicate, King Coffee's record okay. label, yeah, yeah. as its own yeah. documentary. Because yeah. I can just have fun with crazy psychedelic graphics and just play. But the bands on his label were so good. So good. Yeah, they were they were kind of the label that I think, you know, and there were a lot of local labels that sprouted up around that time. But, it, you know, we, we kind of start the, you know, start the book with, with King Coffee having this New Year's resolution right. in 1990 with wanting to start a record label. And, uh, you know, so I think when, when King started that label and that label had t- uh, distribution through Touch and Go, uh, you know, it, it, it opened up a lot of uh, sure. possibilities. Yeah. And, uh, and, yeah, and then he just had... You know, he and Craig, uh, Craig Stewart just had such great taste. Yeah. Uh, they, they just, yeah, the, the whole, the whole narrative arc of that, that label from the beginning when it was bands like Crust and Ed Hall yeah. and then toward the end when they were doing, uh, bands like, uh, American Analog Set and yeah. Trail of Dead and Cyrus, uh, Rigo, uh, and, and then a bunch of, I remember they put out this, this Australian, this very strange eclectic Australian guy named Pitt Proud, I think oh. Emperor Jones, which was Craig's imprint that, you know, that was, you know, they started branching out even in beyond Texas toward the end, uh, but yeah, they, they their catalog is just really yeah quite quite good. Yeah, yeah. Um, that uh, that sixteen deluxe record. That one of the things I found uh, really touching in the book was uh, Carrie kind of talking about how she feels like they could have done a better job of treating king a little bit better for all that he did for that and also how cool he is about it. he's like ah it's all right man he, he you see how cool he is but it's interesting because there's a thing that happened and sorry it's not it's not all about me but there are things that you relate to and they're your friends like carrie you know is a friend of mine and, and frenchie and i are really close and now even more than then um that it's interesting to see when you're growing up, you see how you guys did missteps and how you do feel bad about certain things. If they didn't look like it from your vision, when Capitol records is signing, you're like, fuck transcendent. You know what I mean? That's also a very valid thing too. That's what happens. But the fact that everyone's old enough to kind of like mature enough, I guess, to look back and see their missteps and admit them openly like that. I found that really touching in the book for some reason. Yeah, no, I, th- I think um, th- th- that's the thing. I mean, we were all in our 20s and, you know, all kind of finding our way, yeah. uh, both, you know, in terms of, you know, kind of what, what sort of people you wanted to be and, you know, what your what, what your ethics were and everything. And, you know, I think it's the fact that people, uh, you know, that, that so many of these people still are like, 
doing, you know, doing music and are still, uh, you know, friends and that, you know, if there were, you know, hatchets to be buried, I think yeah. by and large, a lot of them have been, and, and not, which isn't to say that there was ever a, a hatchet with, uh, uh, King and anybody in 16 no. Deluxe, because those guys were just, they, they, they were, they were friends. And I think, you know, I, I know what King kind of said was that, you know, he could kind of, he could kind of see where that was going, Yeah, you know? And, and I think for a band like 16 Deluxe, such a new band, uh, to suddenly be thrown into this maelstrom where you have these giant, you know, multiple corporations, yeah. uh, suddenly like, you know, uh, ponying up for your attention, which yeah. is a very rare thing as, you know, we all know from being in music. Uh, yeah, that, that, that would have been hard yeah. for, and, and I think about like, that'd be hard now if that happened to me. And if it would happen to me in my twenties, it, it would have been really hard. Yeah. 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 I, uh, yeah, that I, I remember that time, uh, real vividly because we, uh, in Gowdy, we were working with Mike McCarthy and he was, kind of loosely doing stuff with Frenchie, but it was when, I, I can't remember if it's before the record came out or well, after he, the he record came the out. He produced the EP. That right? came out afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Which is amazing. amazing. And I yeah. think not I think I heard a couple enough, songs on there. maybe. Like the, I, that EP is just fantastic. Yeah. And, and, and Mike did a great job producing it, yeah. but the songs are, oh. Yeah. yeah. They're a happy recent discovery for me, that EP. <laughs> yeah. That's sort of the post- uh, 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 all the the adulation time of it, yeah, yeah. And there's bands like Fastball there's, and Spoon that are still out there. Like you know, I mean, Fastball. I've just, I spent the summer doing some shows playing in their band and stuff, and their new record that's coming out next year is fucking unbelievable. I know it's like, those guys write great songs. Great they songs. still write great songs. And I mean, I I remember uh, you know first interviewing uh, Miles and Joey when they were in this band called Big Car. Yeah, yeah, yeah which was yeah. right before. Yeah. Uh, well, not right before, but right you know right. Before, well, I guess it was right before they 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 were in Magneto USA that right. became Fastball, and and they sort of you know so they'd already been through the whole major label get signed. Uh, put out a record, have that. And they had going. a real, yeah, they yeah, had a real crappy. Yeah. yeah. They, they, so, um, so in some respects, I think maybe they were, you know, they, they kind of, they, they'd already kind of learned, okay, well, this is, this is what the, uh, you know, th th these are some of the turns maybe not to make. These are some of the things we got to look out for. But, but then it was just the, yeah, I think the, just the songs, uh, they, you know, they always wrote good songs. I mean, the, the big car songs were actually, I, I thought really strong songs too, that you know, depending on what kind of production, we if they if the label would have had, probably right. just let them let them do what they were already doing. Yeah, they probably would have done a lot better. Yeah, yeah. I think they had to do like a firing guys and stuff. They the whole like the whole like terrible major label thing. Yeah, like yeah. The drummer's not cool. All that weird stuff. Oh yeah. Oh really? I think so. Yeah, with big car. Oh yeah. Oof. Not with uh not with uh, yeah, because it was this big thing in town. I remember. Uh, Whatever. There's people that got mad at me for playing something of Lance Keltner because apparently Lance Keltner had some kind of thing against Jan Merkin, who managed Big Car, but Jan also managed my band and she's one of my best friends. And like, how can you go play this thing? Don't you remember what happened to Jan? And this was just a few months ago. Like, I'm talking like oh. three or four months ago where I was like, dude, wow. if I was still like having beef from 92 with people, <laughs> like I would still be mad at Lance Keltner. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I, I spent the 90s mad at him and I decided in the 2000s, why, why should I be mad at this guy anymore? <laughs> and so I'm fine. Yeah. But those beefs still going. It was Miles. It was Miles. I was like, I can't believe you did that thing. Yeah. And I was like, what do you mean, dude? Come on. 
going yeah. back to, to Spoon a little bit, just to sort of tie in yeah. other strange loose ends. So one of their original guitarists was Greg Wilson, also known as Wendell Stivers. Okay. And he left Spoon to join Sincola. Well, no, I think he was in Sincola before Spoon. Or I think I want to say that Brit was still doing the Alien Beats uh, when Sincola started, and then it was it was over the summer of '93 when Spoon kind of came when Spoon, when Spoon kind of came together. Okay, yeah, and and then the first time I think I you know yeah I, the first time I saw Spoon I think they were yeah it was it was Greg uh, playing guitar but but he was already playing in Sincola. Ah, was, yeah, right. there was a show that uh, actually Greg Marino brought it up yesterday, but it was a show called uh, it's in November 93 at uh, Kilimanjaro. Remember that place? It was, it was the no. Cave Club. And then it was uh, uh, it was it was between when it was the Cave Club and when it was uh, Elysium. At some point, oh, okay, that okay. space there, okay. Groover's Paradise or Snooper's Paradise, yeah. oh, wow. you know, that building. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, they did a show called I Am in Sincola Night, and it was, oh. Sincola was headlining, and Gomez, <laughs> Chepo, Chepo Pena's other band, and then and then Spoon with uh, Greg Wilson from Sincola playing guitar, and then the, the Peen Beats, which was my band, we, that was our first show. Ah, oh, fantastic. And we, played, we played for 15 minutes, and... Um, was yeah. Chepo in your band too? Chepo played guitar in, yeah. in, in our band. I've yeah. always thought he was the peen of peen beats and you were the beats of peen beats. It, it, believe it or not, that's not, beats. Yeah, that's actually not how it came about, but it, it worked out nicely that great. we happened to have, you know, someone with the last name of Pena. Yeah. All, all I was getting at was Wendell Stivers is now playing the occasional show with Spoon again. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah just like a little treat for the hardcore fans who know, you know, that he was part of the original lineup. Yeah, yeah. So I if, saw- you, if you're in Perth, Western Australia in December, you get to see him. Oh, wow. <laughs> I uh, I just saw them in New Braunfels a few months ago. It was unbelievable, Spoon. Like, they're, it's just... I mean, talk about a resilient band. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, if Brit, Brit could have given up a good few times the, with the hits he was given. Sure. Uh, and, but he just carried on and he knew his craft and he knew he had a vision and he stuck with it and he's done great. Yeah. And And really humble with it too yeah uh, he's oh, not yeah. the big i am rock star yeah so, uh, yeah he's done well yeah absolutely That's yeah he, i think i think you're right about the vision thing i mean i think you know uh, you know i think his vision it seems like he's just gotten more and more to the essence of it the further along he's gone um and and yeah and it was you know i mean early on i mean you could detect other influences in spoon's early stuff but i think you know and then at some point uh, I, I, for me, it would have been right around the turn of the, you know, when 99 turned into 2000, right around girls can tell, yeah, but that. it's like, suddenly it was like, you know, now there are bands that sound like spoon, you yeah, know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Dude. Oh, I just, that girls can tell record. Like I always thought he was great. I always thought they were great. And I, I remembered the, uh, the acoustic guitar plugged into the, into the amp too at hole in the wall. Yeah. Oh yeah. So I'm thinking like I might've seen them for the first time, maybe in 94 or something like that. Yeah. Um, but, uh, Oh shit. I just lost my train of thought. Fucking. I hate this world too much. Too many things in my mind. Um, what a great fucking band. I'm just, I was trying to think of this other band. There's just so many of them from that time. I made a list of all the bands, so I wouldn't forget. Who you got? Um, okay, Spoon, Sincola, 16 Deluxe, Stretford, 
those were like my favorite bands, Trailer Dead. I I love those guys. Um, I don't think I ever saw Gomez. Don't ever think I saw uh, the Motards, but I definitely saw Pork a bunch. I'm friends with Dana and Squat Thrust and never saw Impotency Snakes, although that is a fucking amazing name. Peen Beats saw, saw it Hall, Starfish and Moist Fist. Uh, Starfish, I, I remember really well. They were really great. Yeah. yeah, they came down from the Pacific Northwest. And, oh, really? Uh, they, it was interesting. They said they would love to be on the trance label, but that wasn't their sound. Like Starfish were kind of pop music, right? right They're right. good indie rock pop music. Right. And trance at that time was angular noise. Right. Um, and they said between them leaving the Pacific Northwest, driving down to Austin, by the time they'd got here, yeah, trance signed them. Yeah. Wow. I said, well, I guess trance is changing their sound and evolving with the times. Yeah. Um, but that runaround video and single... I mean, that was just perfect Austin. Right? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, you would have never known that they just yeah, were relatively new arrivals. Well, not, not for, Scott Marcus had been here for a while, obviously, sure. playing in Glass Eye, but uh, yeah, yeah. You know, one of those things that does, uh, there was a, video, a culture of making videos, and a lot of that comes from having Austin music, like a, like, a, uh, like a place to put the video. Yeah. You know what I mean? And uh, I was glad to see that John Spath got so much. I love that dude. And the administration, my ex-wife, uh, Tracy worked at at the 501 building with all those dudes and they were just they were guys that I hung out with at her work functions and stuff like that then yeah they, they were doing I mean yeah they're just doing really amazing stuff that holds up um, totally for, for not a whole lot of money yeah and uh, and, it was, and, yeah. and they would you know having film people as part of the music scene was amazing right I think that's another part of the scene that maybe didn't exist in other cities right you've got these amazing filmmakers who like come off the set of whatever corporate they're doing sure and they've got an extra few hundred feet of film so right we're gonna make a 16 deluxe video or or um a sincola video or you know and and get it played on the indie tv stations around the country yeah but, but like you said, there was a vin- you know there there was a venue on which to show yeah. these you know we, I mean we we had the you know I mean access had already been going for a pretty good long time there but you know but I mean Austin Music Network uh, once which, that came out yeah yeah which was something that you know I, I don't think has ever existed anyplace else and there might I mean, be a reason well <laughs> it's a, I, I like to think of it as a noble you know it, it was it, it was a noble failure in yeah. a lot of ways it was it was something that it but but i think you know the city that the, the fact that the city i mean how many cities would have even been like yeah well it, let's uh, let's start a cable channel to help local Absolutely. bands yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I had a couple of songs that you it, it that like I had a couple songs that were that were regularly yeah, on did. there, and and I got started getting recognized at the grocery store. No way! Yeah, really? Like, yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> like, way after that, like you'd be shopping, and like, hey, you back a magazine guy? You're like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> that's and great. uh, and and I fucking got asked to join the Bodines because of because of Austin's. They were watching. I got an I got an email from uh from Kurt's wife, who's managing them at the time, and she was like, hey, we. I just wanted to write, my husband and I loved, it. there was another song. They were like, we love this song. It's like, you want to get together and hang out? Like, sure. And so I ended up like, started, I played with them a lot for a while. So what did you make videos for? Was uh, you, did you have another band called 47 Seconds or something seconds? No, that's Those, Spencer. That's Spencer. That's my sorry, next door neighbor. <laughs> at I, the time. <laughs> there was a lot going on at the music. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so what were your music videos? 
remember. Back of a Magazine was one where it okay. was me. It was just like the Billy Harvey one. Okay. Because the same people that did the Billy Harvey one did mine. <laughs> and they had just the same idea. Let's have him play all the instruments because that's what he did on the record. So, right. And then there was one for a song called uh, You Can't Pretend Forever that had a bunch of people in front of a corrugated fence. Okay. All right. Very singing cool. the lyrics. But it was yeah. people from other bands like, uh, oh, what was the, fuck, I'm drawing a blank. Louis Messina's kids. Oh. They um, had a band and they got signed to like Virgin or something. And they had that cool English dude that was so fun to hang out with. Anyway, people like that. <laughs> Those people. Yeah. 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 Just guys like that. Because I mean, when to the music network, when it was a city entity, that was, it was fine. You know, it was run with. The basement of. Yeah, yeah I remember that one. Yeah. yeah, yeah Did yeah. you come down to yeah, play yeah. acoustically? Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> it was weird, wasn't it? Yeah. Like, totally so weird. much asbestos. Uh, and <laughs> no. I was also on the Weird Langer show. And I got in a lot of trouble because we were, we were about to sign with Lars Ulrich's label. And Langer and I were very good friends. And he, uh, when I was on the thing, he said, can you even name two Metallica albums? <laughs> and like, I looked at him like, Dick, you know I can't. And so, <laughs> and I, it was a live show. It was a live show. And then I said, load and reload. And then when I got home, my... Uh, he made endless fun. He's like, oh, okay. Like, sure. That was easy. Like, name an album that came out before the Black Album. And I was just like... Yeah. So, I got home and my ex-wife was like, oh, your manager called. And he's really mad. You better call him. And he oh. was like, dude, if this even remotely got back to him, do you think he would be... And I was like, he's not signing us because we're his biggest fans. He knows that I'm like, I don't... I know like five of your... The songs that they play on the... I know those songs. I don't... I just didn't know it. I well, also... Anyway. What C three presents that our local promoters yeah, yeah, here yeah. learnt yeah. when they put on like Metallica Fest or whatever it yeah, was, yeah. they said they asked Metallica to book the other bands. Metallica don't like thrash metal. No, they I like mean, yeah. Nice when he signed our band, he wasn't signing a band that was Metallica. Adjacent. No, they don't want competition. No, no. no exactly right. <laughs> and exactly so Metallica right. Fest was yeah. a failure because all the fans came to listen to lots of thrash yeah, metal, yeah, yeah. and they booked you know quite nice rock bands or pop uh, bands. C three did that one. Yeah, that what was that Orion Fest? God, there's so many fucking festivals now. Yeah, but that Lang, I produced that Langer show. You did? Yeah, I asked him to 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 be on the couch, and and me and the director were going. Wow, he's really confrontational, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, it he loved it so TV, much, dude. Yeah, but he wound you guys up, and and all his friends who he brought on the couch, he yeah. just put you, he roasted you, really, right? Yeah, and and it was and fun. Buckner, the director, mentions that in the book, like yeah. how awkward it was for I've us. I've forgotten all about it until I read it, and I was like, oh, that's what that was. Yeah. Like, did he? He took on David, I think, right? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And then we brought in Paula Nelson to kind of rein him in. Right, right. And she did a good job. Yeah. Yeah, she's she's awesome. Um All right, so uh you guys are doing a book uh uh Texas Book Fair. Oh, that's yeah. right. Event and we stuff. Are. Yeah. yeah. Any other kind of events coming up? Yesterday was the big thing and I missed it. Yesterday, yeah, yesterday was the big the big rock show book release it was fine. I, yeah. I'm not I'm the I've got the worst ego, uh, smallest ego, you know what I mean, but this show that Greg put together yesterday, I, the the venue was packed to the gills, 
And then the outside courtyard area was packed to the gills, and then people were spilling onto the street. Yeah. And, and Tim Stiegel described it as the best high school reunion ever, yeah. which I think <laughs> is beautiful, yeah. right? And, the, and Greg put all that together. Well, it was, it was, I mean, it was relatively easy because the, the, the bands were totally like up and willing to do it. And I mean, it just, it, you know, and it was just all, yeah, every band just sounded great, like as good as, as, good as I'd ever heard them and i, I don't great. think i'm hearing through the you know the echoes of nostalgia i mean it's people oh, just getting no, a little they, better at their craft and you know d- d- you know presenting themselves uh and, and not everyone trying to play louder than everyone else yeah every, can, there was a great balance in this and yeah. i know this is important to us at our age there was yeah. a good balance to the sound <laughs> but we had mike henry from electric lounge yeah. uh re- give yeah, what, what i called I an invocation that. i don't know if technically oh he invoked in, yeah. <laughs> there was invoking a, going on. Yeah, but but he was a he was big in the uh, Austin Poetry Slam yeah. uh, thing back in the day. In addition to uh, you know running Electric Lounge, and and that was just a a beautiful way to get things started. And then um, you know Ed Hamill comes out, and oh. you know Ed Hamill just with you know his him doing the solo guitar thing, just like you know totally like this machine kills fascist type yeah, guitars yeah, yeah, amplified yeah. Yeah. and. Uh, yeah, it was, you know, all, all the bands, so the John Paul's yard work, uh, um, the, you know, the, the original Gomez and, uh, and and Glorium, they were all just yeah, fantastic. Am I, am I missing anybody? Jesus Christ, Superfly. Living Pins. Just, Living oh, Pins, yes. Uh, I think, yeah. was Christy, do you know Christy's, was Christy playing drums? Christy McGinnis? With the Living Blue Pins? Bonnets? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they, that awesome. was her first gig. Oh, really? She them. was great. Wasn't she amazing? She's and so, fucking great. So she's going between that and Kathy Valentine's band, right? Yeah. And, and we have a band. Oh, you do as well? Yeah. yeah. Isn't she amazing? Me and, me and, uh, me and Christy and Dominique. Yeah. Oh. She's fucking amazing. Yeah. 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 I mean, just totally like, you know, solid, you know, do I mean, yeah. She she played like in, in service to the song, which yeah. I think is, but in, yeah, just dead on looked like she was having a great time mm-hmm. i mean um she loves yeah. to play man when yeah. you see her next please tell her she stood out i'll tell her yeah it she really really i went to that go-go's musical and she was the drummer in the in the band there she was fucking amazing mm-hmm. yeah yeah Ka- kathy's book is uh, yeah. also fantastic book. also on ut press yes yep. yes and w- i mean some roller coaster stories yeah speaking of will sexton yeah we're, oh, Charlie. About. Sorry, Who, Charlie. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Charlie, Charlie was, there, that for was that there for that very that dark crazy, moment. Crazy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, what a harrowing story. I they mean, got thank robbed. goodness. You know what I'm talking about? I got sure robbed in L.A. Like uh, like somebody broke in and uh, uh, Charlie was dating like Carlene Carter or something. And they were they were all staying there. And some guy like held them at gunpoint and robbed them. Oh and my like was going to kill them. And Well, not gunpoint, uh, trowel point. Trowel point. So had oh, stolen yeah. a garden trowel and yeah. had it up against the neck of the, this lady. Yeah. And she said, just do what he says. And, and Kathy had learned from maybe watching movies or something yeah, yeah. that when you get your wrists tied up, because that's what yeah. was happening, if you have a, a little gap between your you wrists... you can work them out. Yeah. yeah, and so the guy went off to do something else and Kathy escaped and ran to the neighbors and, you know, got, got the police involved yeah. and, the, and the guy stole Kathy's car and escaped. But oh dear God. Lord, and that was a harrowing And Charlie story. was like only like 16 or 17 or something. Yeah, then. yeah pretty young really at on. that time. Wow. Um, yeah. Sorry, that was a dark avenue. No. The yeah. point being, uh, the drummer, whose name is... Christy McGinnis. Thank you. Yeah. Is amazing. Yeah. Amazing. 
phenomenal. Um, so this book's available on YouTube Press. Uh, you can find it anywhere. I got it at, at Book People. Yep, I wanted wonderful. to go to a placing, but it's also at Antone's Records. It's at Antone's, End of an Ear, uh, Breakaway. Um, and yes, I think Waterloo. I'm not sure they're doing okay. books. I think so Waterloo much Yeah, no, I think Waterloo has them. Okay, yeah. I'll cool. put links yeah. to uh, to all of the places where you can get the book here. And honestly, man, thank you guys so much for doing this. Oh, I, well, thank you for that, having us. Johnny. I mean, I like, not it. just thank you for doing the show, but thank you oh. for writing this book. It was really, it was a fucking blast to read. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, that's yeah. amazing. Appreciate that. I, and I have to say, I was thinking all the time we've been talking. This is the most relaxed interview. Oh, this good. Is so, good. This setup well, it's got Sunday is afternoon. You guys no, no, had your no, big day just, yesterday. I'm tired from moving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's wonderful. If Johnny asks you to do this podcast, do it because oh, it's good. a Thank beautiful you. experience. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you're uh, Paul McCartney and you're listening right now, because I know that you're a big fan of yeah. A Curious Mix of People. Well, I'll say it in the intro and the outro. <laughs> but A Curious Mix of People, The Underground Scene of the 90s of 90s Austin by Greg Beats and Richard Weimark. Thank you guys so much for doing the show. Thanks for writing the book. Great to see you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Gang, that was Greg Beats and Richard Weimark, authors of A Curious Mix of People, The Underground Scene of 90s Austin, available on University of Texas Press. And you can find it at acuriousmixofpeople.com. What a great conversation. I could have kept on going. I really could have. I could have kept on going all day. You guys got to get this book. It's so good. I think even if you weren't in that scene, it's so fun to read. It's so exciting. It's so well written. My hat's off to Greg and to Richard. They did an amazing job. Everyone check out this book. If you were around then, you're going to want to read it. All your friends are in it. All your friends, all your favorite bands. You know what I'm talking about. Hey, gang, don't forget when you're out there checking out a curious mix of people.com, you can subscribe to this podcast wherever it is that you find podcasts, be it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Overcast, Stitcher, uh, not Stitcher, sorry, Stitcher's gone. Uh, new shows every Tuesday and every Friday. All right. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Check out this book, A Curious Mix of People. Have a great weekend. Be safe and have fun. Let's get down. <laughs>